God says through his prophet, have we not all one father? Does not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. The abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer rewards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. The the people are there sinning in uh, two ways. One, by uh, marrying unbelieving wives. And then two, by uh, breaking covenant with their own wives, which Malachi calls covering their garment with violence by the ways that they mistreat them and even unlawfully divorce their spouses. And yet in the midst of that, he asks the question, what was the one God seeking in marriage? And the answer he gives is godly offspring. The connection is, is this, ungodly marriages, like the ones that, that he's addressing there, where Christ-like faithfulness is not evident, are going to be a profound obstacle to those marriages producing godly offspring. For your marriage is meant to model the gospel to your children. And hence, the same progression in Ephesians, where out of the soil of the godly marriage of Ephesians 5 comes the instruction about the nurture of our children in Christ. And so we'll uh, read the first four verses now of Ephesians 6 on page 1162 in your pew Bible. The apostle writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then all that we read also in connection with uh, Lord's Day 39 on the fifth commandment. This day that we've been able to witness the covenant sign of baptism, it's fitting that we would uh, consider the Christian family, God's teaching on it, confess together on what we believe concerning the fifth commandment as we read together question 104. Responsively, on page 891 in the back of your hymnals. It asks, what is God's will for you in the fifth commandment? That I show honor, love, and faithfulness 
to my father and mother and all those in authority over me, submit myself with proper obedience to all their good teaching and discipline, and also that I be patient with their failings, for by their hand God wills to rule us. Lord's Day 39 there uh, certainly places the emphasis on what is required of those under authority, but I, I would remind you again, since it's been a couple of weeks, what we pointed out a few weeks ago from the Westminster Larger Catechism, where it notes in its exposition of the fifth commandment that there are um, obligations both on inferiors, those who are, are called to submit, but then also for superiors, those who, who by God's design, by God's command, are called to lead. As it goes through and, and mentions what those obligations are for, for the, the, uh, the ones who are called to lead, in this case for parents, it says to love and, and to pray for and, and to bless those under their authority, to instruct and, and counsel and admonish them, and to show tenderness toward them. And so this morning, we want to spend as much time talking about that as we do in, in uh, talking about children obeying and taking our cues from Ephesians 6. We want to look first at the obedience in the Lord that God requires of our children. And then, as we turn to verse 4, we'll look at the instruction of the Lord that God calls Christian parents uh, to impart. And so first, uh, boys and girls, we're going to talk about the obedience in the Lord that God requires of you. Again, verse 1 in our passage says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. A very basic command here is that you obey your mom and dad. As our catechism says, that, that you submit yourself with proper obedience to their good teaching and discipline. God, in his wisdom, has placed them over you and so you are to obey them. Of course, if they tell you to do something sinful, you, you don't. It says that we submit to their, their good teaching and discipline. But assuming that's the case, you are to obey them. And not just going through the motions of, of obedience, doing so with an unhappy heart, but, but in obeying them, verse 2 says you are to honor them. Our catechism says to love them. That they show honor, love, and faithfulness to my father and mother, which means a cheerful obedience. It's not speaking of, a, of, a, of an angry, grumpy, disrespectful, just going through the motions kind of obedience, but that which is the fruit of a heart that loves and honors your parents. There's a world of difference between a, a grudging obedience and an obedience that is the response of a thankful heart. Some of us teach our children that slow obedience is no obedience. Likewise, grumpy obedience from a heart that says, I don't want to be doing this, is no true obedience either. But God calls you to honor and obey your parents out of love for them and out of love for him. In fact, if you look just a couple of verses ahead in Ephesians chapter 6 to what Paul says about slaves and masters or bond servants and, and their masters or employers, he, he says, obey them with a sincere heart, not by way of eye service, there's people pleasers, 
having an appearance of, of obedience without really doing so in your heart, but obey them, he says, as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to God and not to men. God is there commanding cheerful obedience from the heart, and that applies not just to servants and masters, but also to children with their parents. Don't let your obedience be like that of the elder brother in Jesus' parable, the prodigal son, where he says to his father, these, these many years I have, I have slaved for you, but you never gave me anything in return. He resents the father's grace toward his brother because he didn't earn it. You understand how that kind of obedience doesn't honor your parents, nor does it honor God. Reluctant, disrespectful, slavish obedience is not what the fifth commandment calls you to, but God calls you to honor and obey your parents with love and faithfulness and and with, with all of the kinds of attitudes that Paul mentions throughout the rest of Ephesians. I mean, this is in the context of a whole book. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 lay out the, the, the truths of the gospel for us, and then 4, 5, and 6 teach us what it looks like to walk in grateful obedience to that. And, and all throughout Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5, Paul is, is calling us towards gentleness, and patience, and humility, and, and to have no corrupting talk come out of our mouths or, or any bitterness in our hearts or in our speech, but to walk in love as Christ has loved us. Ultimately, out of of love, the God who, Lord's Day 39 says, wills to rule you through those who he's placed over you. Your obedience to your parents is obedience to the Lord. That's part of what's meant by those three little words in the middle of verse 1, in the Lord. That means, first of all, as we said, that that because your obedience to your parents is ultimately in obedience to God, then you're not to obey your parents or any authority if they call you to sin against God. But it also means so long as they are calling you to do what's right, then obeying them is part of your obedience to God. You could say you, you can't obey him without obeying them. One of the main ways that God calls you to show love for him is by honoring your parents who he has placed over you. Boys and girls, your obedience to them is obedience to him. Your obedience to them also trains you to obey your heavenly father in all ways. We often tell our children, this is not just about mom and dad wanting you to do, uh, wanting to, to make you do what we want you to do, but but it's about teaching you how to, to submit to those in authority. Because if, if you cannot love, honor, and obey your earthly father, then how are you going to love, honor, and obey your heavenly father? You see, the fifth commandment is a sort of training grounds. In fact, it's interesting. I was looking just, just before the, the service at Lord's Day 34, where it speaks of, of um, the, the love that we owe to God as we're to honor, love, and fear. I and mean, it uses many, much of the same language that Lord's Day 39 uses of the honor that we owe to our parents. As we teach our children to love, honor, and obey their earthly father and mother in faithfulness, we are teaching them how to love, honor, obey, and fear their heavenly Father in faithfulness. Fifth commandment is a sort of training grounds for the whole Christian life. 
And, and I say the Christian life because that's what Paul's command implies in, in addressing the children to whom he speaks as those who, verse 1, are in the Lord. And it's interesting, if you look back to the very beginning of the book of Ephesians, um, Paul always addresses in those first couple of verses the people to whom he writes in that greeting. And in Ephesians 1 verse 1, he addresses this letter to the saints who are in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. He writes this letter to the saints, those who are set apart as holy as God's covenant people. And now within that letter addressed to the saints, he, he begins in, in chapters 5 and 6 to address all of these different subgroups within that, that larger group, that larger group that he calls saints, those set apart in God's covenant people. And in those little subgroups that he's addressing, slaves and masters, children, parents, husbands, wives, he addresses the children as those who are in the Lord. John Murray In his book on Christian baptism, he says, in this passage, Paul includes children among those who are addressed as saints. In the context of of the passage, exhortations are being given to various classes of saints framed in terms of of their Christian standing and character. And then he speaks to the children. Everything points to the conclusion that children, equally with their parents and with masters and servants, belong to the body of Christ and are fully embraced in the fellowship of the saints. They are in the Lord. And then Murray says, if children were thus recognized and received in the apostolic churches, they were recognized as possessing the, the status of which baptism is the sign and seal. And if this is so, then there is no reason why such children should not have received the sign and seal of that status and privilege. You see what Murray is, is, is saying there. He's making the same point as that first vow in our baptism form. That you believe our, our, your children are, are sanctified in Christ and so as members of his church ought to be baptized. And Thomas received the sign of baptism this morning because he is among those sanctified in Christ who as members of his church ought to be baptized. He is among those who, according to Ephesians 6, are covenantally in the Lord. And so as as Thomas grows up, you place before him the obligations of the fifth commandment. As you you place before him the, the, the obligations that he has to keep that fifth commandment, he is to do that because he belongs to Christ. His obedience to you as mom and dad is obedience to his covenant Lord, who also graciously promises him in verse 3, That if he does this out of love for and faith in his covenant Lord and heavenly Father, that it will go well for him. It says he will live long in the land. Which, of course, in the Old Testament, when God gives that in Exodus 20, was was a, a national promise that as God's nation, God's people obeyed those in authority, it would go well for them and God would keep them in the land. But by quoting it here in Ephesians 6, Paul reminds us that it apparently also has New Testament application as as the promised land of the new heavens and new earth we know is is, um, ultimately what the promised land of the Old Testament pointed to. The author of Hebrews makes that point over and over. 
And so the New Testament application is this, that the promised land of the new heavens and new earth is given by grace to those who out of love for Christ and and faith in him honor their parents in the Lord. It's not talking about some sort of of, uh, works-based salvation. This is talking about obedience that is in the Lord. This is talking about those who have responded to the grace of the gospel in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, and Ephesians 3, and who out of of their faith in Christ obey their parents in the Lord because they obey and love their heavenly Father. God gives this gracious promise to them. And so as as parents, we, we want to help them do that. We want to help them show their love, honor, and faithfulness to their heavenly Father by teaching them to obey their earthly fathers in the Lord. That's what Paul turns to next, having told Christ's covenant children to obey their parents in the Lord. He now calls you mothers and fathers to instruct them of the Lord, to raise your children to love both their earthly and their heavenly father, to train them to show honor, love, and faithfulness to God himself. And he instructs us as parents in the way that we should do this first by way of of prohibition. Telling us at the beginning of verse 4, this is what you're not to do. That he tells us two or three things that we must do. So first, what we're not to do. Given the fact that that children in the verses immediately prior to this are are called to, to submit to and obey their parents, Paul wants to make sure that that authority is not abused. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. He, he does this often, or, or Peter as well. You think of First Peter chapter 3, where those first six verses are called uh, a calling for wives to submit to their husbands. And then in verse 7, he speaks to husbands, and he says, but live with your wife in an understanding way and showing her honor as the weaker vessel, for she is an heir with you of the grace of life. And so um, after speaking of the authority Uh, or the the submission of the one, he then speaks to the other and says, do not misuse that authority. He does the same thing here, that the first word that he has to Christian fathers in verse four is do not provoke your children to anger. Do not misuse the authority that you have been granted by God. Again, I would draw your attention to that last line in uh, Lord's Day 39. It says, for by their hand, God wills to rule us. And so as, as we, we uh, uh, sort of paraphrase that, speaking to, to the parents, saying, by your hand, God wills to rule your children, who are ultimately his children. And so because you are merely the instrument by which he rules, uh, wills to rule them, you better not misuse the authority that has been entrusted to you. Do not provoke them to anger. That, that one simple command forbids um, excessively severe discipline, unreasonably harsh demands, abuse of authority, forbids arbitrariness or unfairness. It forbids constant nagging and condemnation or subjecting a child to humiliation, all forms of of insensitivity to their needs and sensibilities. Um, Biblical counselors uh, Stuart Scott and Martha Peace in their 
a book, The Faithful Parent. They've got a whole chapter on this phrase and on, on ways that parents either directly or indirectly provoke their children to anger. They point out how you can do it by hypocrisy, calling your children to do something that you will not do yourself. You can do it by your own fits of, of rage and anger. You can do it by lording your authority over them. You can provoke them to anger by inconsistency in the rules that you employ or, or by legalism at a graceless culture in your home, by making them think that, that, that they need to earn your approval, or, or by being constantly concerned with what others might think of you as, as a parent, and so you overreact in anger to minor offenses. All of these are ways that we provoke our children to anger. And also that we then undermine what the fifth commandment is ultimately seeking to accomplish in, in training them to love, honor, and obey their heavenly father. If their obedience to you is supposed to be a training grounds for teaching them to obey their heavenly father, then your nurture of them and your exercise of authority over them is also meant to be a sort of training grounds for how they think of the nature and character of their heavenly father. Darby Strickland says God refers to himself as our Heavenly Father to impress upon us the ways that that he protects us and the affection and care that he has for us. In this regard, our earthly Christian fathers are meant to represent, albeit dimly, what God the Father is like. But if you are hypocritical, angry, abusive, arbitrary, inconsistent, or legalistic in the way that you treat your children, what are you teaching them about their Heavenly Father? You are presenting them with a distorted picture of God. Insofar as you are supposed to image to them what God the Father is like, you are taking His name in vain. By the way, the same sort of thing applies when you mistreat their mother as we saw in Malachi. It's possible to provoke your children to anger, to to undermine your Christian nurture of them, and to repel them from the faith also by failing to live according to the standards of Ephesians 5, 25 to 33. Christian nurture of Ephesians 6 grows out of the soil of the godly Christian marriage of Ephesians 5, so don't undermine that by misusing your authority but rather seek to cultivate in your children a positive view of what God is like and a a positive view of what Christ the bridegroom is like by the way that you treat them and by the way that you treat your spouse. Which gets down to the the positive command that Paul gives in verse 4 where he says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We see here one um, primary command and then two ways that Paul calls us to carry this out. First, He says, bring them up. This might not look like much, but interestingly, this is is the the same verb from Ephesians 5.29 where Paul told husbands to nourish their wives. It's, It's the same Greek word used here in both places leading Calvin actually to translate it here in Ephesians 6.4 as, as fondly cherish them. So before Paul gets at what we must do, and in contrast to what we must not do, 
He underscores the attitude with which parents, and especially fathers, must treat their children. You must fondly cherish them. You're saying after the sermon from Psalm 103, the tender love a father has. It speaks of how God has this, this tender, loving care for his children. He, he knows that we are dust, and yet he treats us accordingly in grace. And he is unchanging in that gracious disposition toward us. And in the way that you fondly cherish your children, you are to seek to the best of your ability to mirror that. So that their, their first impression, your children's first impression of what it means that God is their father is a positive one where they understand his great love and mercy and don't view him as a tyrant or as not having time for them or as having a love that's, that's conditioned by their performance where he keeps them at an arm's length they don't live up to it. No, as God fondly cherishes his children in Psalm 103, you must yours. That's the first step in in what Paul says next about bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It, It begins with the way that you depict God as father and bridegroom. But of course, it goes beyond that, also to the actual instruction that we give them. As Paul mentions two things at the end of verse four, discipline and instruction, or the older translations say nurture and admonition, or still others, um, training and admonition. This gets at the fact that, that the discipline that is here mentioned is, is more of a, a discipling, and an all-of-life training. Um, Lloyd-Jones says it is the totality of nurturing, rearing, and bringing up the child. In all of life, you are to train them, disciple them, and nurture them. Which includes also, of course, the the corrective discipline that Lord's Day 39 mentions. But that's not all that Paul has in mind. He's talking about an all of life discipleship. He's talking about the same thing that, that Moses is in Deuteronomy 6 when he says, when you sit in your home and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, you're to teach your children these things. In other words, this training is not relegated only to times of, of public or family worship, but the whole of life is to be the context of this nurture as you fondly cherish your children and seek to cultivate in them a love for the Lord Jesus. It's all of life. Then, of course, there are also those those times of of more focused instruction, the good teaching that Lord's Day 39 speaks of, and that's what what Paul gets at more pointedly at the end of the verse, where he speaks of the instruction of the Lord, and this has reference to to actual teaching. It has reference to to words spoken and, and truths that we impart to our children. And the content of these truths that we impart to them is contained in those last three words of our passage, of the Lord. That word of there has the idea of not just being from the Lord, but but about the Lord, concerning the Lord. He is to be the sum and substance of what you teach your children, the person and work of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesse and Jed, what you vowed in in that third vow, that you will teach little Thomas this doctrine of salvation, that you you will teach him about Christ. 
Lloyd-Jones says, in the forefront of your minds as Christian parents must ever be the thought that your children are to be brought up in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus as, as Savior and Lord. Because that is the peculiar task to which Christian parents are called. It's not only your supreme task, but your greatest desire and ambition for Thomas should be that he will grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. We teach our children about Christ. All of our instruction of them from God's word is, is to be conditioned by those three words of the Lord. Which means then that you are not primarily just teaching him moralistic instruction. You're not merely teaching him about the law, but you're teaching him the gospel. The good news of what Christ our Lord has done that, that permeates every page of the scriptures. And you also let that gospel message be that which, which infuses you with the grace that you need as you seek to do all of this. As we seek to fondly cherish our children, to not provoke them and, and to discipline them well, all of this requires the same grace of God in the gospel that we seek to teach our children. Every one of us will fall short of this standard, and so we need this good news too. The good news of Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 and and Ephesians 3 of what Christ has accomplished, of of what God has ordained from before eternity past, or the the very beginning of, of the book. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He has predestined us for adoption through Christ his Son. He has purchased us for for redemption and washed us with the blood of his son. He has sealed us with his Holy Spirit by grace as the down payment for that day of redemption. We need this good news too. This good news of Lord's Days 5 through 31 of Christ, our prophet, priest, and king who suffered in our place, who God rose from the dead, ascended into God's, uh, the, the right hand of God where he intercedes for us and is there for us. The good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus who washes us of our sin as we saw this morning in baptism and applies his obedience to ours. This good news we teach to our children and this good news we preach to ourselves. When our children fail in obeying their parents in the Lord, bring them to the cross. We show them what Christ has done. We remind them of their baptism and how when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to wash them away. We preach that same gospel to ourselves as we sin against our children, as we fall short of what verse four calls us to. When we provoke them to anger, when we misuse our authority, we take God's name in vain and misrepresent to them the, the nature and character of the Father. When we fall short of instructing them of Christ by word and by example, we need this gospel too. And when we, when we continue to come back to it as, as needy children ourselves, that will change the way that we treat our children. As Brian Chapel has said, that the father that we perceive God to be will largely shape the parent that we are able to be. 
the father that we perceive God to be will largely shape the parent that we are able to be. Do you view him as as a tyrant, as a mere judge and law keeper? uh, Yeah, one who, who gives you laws that you need to keep. If that's how you view God, that's going to affect the way that you interact with with your children. Or do you view him as the God of Psalm 103? The gracious God who, who condescends to us in our weakness through Christ and lifts us up. The father that we perceive God to be will largely shape the parent that we are able to be. The grace that we receive from him will shape the way that we show grace to our children. As God is to us, so we seek to be to our children. And so as we ourselves are drinking deeply of the gospel of our Lord Jesus, confessing our sin and receiving his grace, we will show that same grace to our children and we will teach them of that grace. And even of of mom and dad's need for that grace as we confess to them the ways that, that we sin against them. We might show them that we need this grace too. So they might grow to know the Lord Jesus as the most lovely, most gracious, most kind and beautiful Savior and know their Heavenly Father to be the overflowing fount of all good so that with us they might praise him together with Christ's Spirit as the God of their salvation. That's the goal. May God so work that grace in our children as we instruct them of the Lord and as we teach them to obey in the Lord in response to his grace toward them. Let us pray that God would do just that. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us in Christ, the grace of the gospel that is unfolded throughout this book of Ephesians where you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, predestining us for adoption, redeeming and washing us by Christ's blood, sealing us with your spirit for the day of redemption. Lord, we pray that you would help us to teach this good news to our children. The good news of Christ's substitutionary life and death, his glorious resurrection and ascension. And that you would teach our children to respond to that good news with thankful obedience. Even learning as we train them to obey their parents to love, honor, and obey their heavenly father. Lord, we pray for Jesse and Joanne as they raise Thomas in the nurture and admonition of Christ. That in their marriage they would model for him the love of Christ, the bridegroom, and the church's devotion to her savior that out of of the soil of that godly Christian marriage would come godly Christian nurture where they fondly cherish this covenant child and seek to be to him as you have been to them, not provoking him to anger or misusing their authority, but being kind, gentle, gracious, and good. Most of all, teaching him of Christ. With your spirit would so work in him to respond to that gospel teaching, both at home and at church, so that he would one day profess faith in the Lord Jesus and be seated at his table of grace. Lord, we pray this for all of our children, which would even work in and through us weak parents by your grace to lead them by the hand to our prophet, priest, and king, who is our life. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.